0: As J.P. Moreland puts it, Jesus fulfilled numerous centuries-old prophecies from the Old Testament, and this fact cannot simply be the result of human wisdom. Um, It is beyond the wit of educated guesswork, if you like. Such a fact defies naturalistic explanation, and that means, of course, that it supports a supernatural interpretation now atheists like uh, victor stenger is open to this kind of argument at least in principle victor stenger in his book the new atheism uh, says that to validate a spiritual experience all that has to happen he says is that a person returning from such an experience report some fact that she could not have known ahead of time this could be the successful prediction of some future event so he's open to this kind of argument in principle. That's the sort of evidence that he would like. Well, as Ian Wilson, a historian, says, it's a straight fact of history that Herod's seemingly so permanent temple, then recently completed in Jesus' life, which Jesus had predicted would be destroyed within a generation of his time. And we've got the references there to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those predictions did indeed suffer this very fate. And here is a photo of the rubble at the bottom of the retaining wall of the temple mount. And to put that kind of prediction of this temple complex will be completely razed to the ground in context, think uh, in terms of the uh, Acropolis in Athens, which of course is still standing to this day. Uh, it is a risky Prediction um, to point at something like this and say, yeah, within a generation, that's going to all be gone. Thomas Morris, American philosopher, says a single successful prediction about a remote or unlikely event can be just a lucky guess. So perhaps Victor Stenger is not being stringent enough in the sort of evidence that he's looking for. A shot in the dark might just happen to hit its target, says Morris. But the more successful predictions of that sort a person's able to make, the less likely we are to be fully satisfied with just ascribing it all to luck. There's a certain point at which we start looking a bit foolish if we say, huh, how lucky... At a certain point, we have to hypothesize some explanation for the success of the predictions. Some connection that's responsible for the otherwise highly improbable accuracy. Some sort of um, hypothesis that would raise the probability of these, pro- these predictions being accurate predictions. Well, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 11, uh, n- nicely summarizes... Uh, The early church is thinking about Old Testament prophecy in relation to Christ, I think. And Peter there says, Some prophets told how kind God would be to you, and they searched hard to find out more about the way you would be saved. The Spirit of Christ was in them, the Holy Spirit, and was telling them how Christ would suffer and would then be given great honour. So they searched to find out exactly who Christ would be and when this would happen. And you can see there that you can break down various categories of types of prophecy about the Messiah, the foretold Messiah of the Old Testament. About when he would come, what sort of character he would have, what he would do, and so on. So in Old Testament prophecy, they sought to discern when the Messiah would be active... And one can argue that Jesus' ministry satisfies that prediction. Old Testament prophecy sought to discern who the Messiah would be in terms of their genealogy. Something we can analyse in terms of his his origins and his actions as well. Who who he would be in terms of what sort of thing he would do. And I think Jesus satisfies those Old Testament elements of the portrait of the Messiah. The Old Testament prophecies try to discern that the Messiah would suffer in the cause of salvation. I'm thinking particularly here, things like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, like Jesus did. Old Testament prophecy discerned that the manner of the Messiah's suffering, not just that he would suffer, but quite a lot of fairly specific details about how he would suffer, that Jesus' suffering comports with. And finally, Old Testament prophecy discerned that having suffered, the Messiah would be given great honour. And even some rather heavy hints about death, but death not getting in the way of him seeing the fulfilment of his project. So Let's think of a couple of um, the most obvious kind of counter-arguments to this sort of argument from fulfilled prophecy. What about deliberate fulfilment? Well, I think, for example, when Jesus claims to make a new covenant, um, look in the Old Testament at Jeremiah 31, and then look at uh, 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, Mark 14, 22 to 24, and so on. Jesus makes a new covenant that's predicted in the Old Testament. Or when he rode a donkey into Jerusalem, and have a look at Zechariah 9, 9, and Matthew 21, 4 to 5, for example. When he did those things, I think it's very clear that Jesus was was deliberately setting out to fulfill Old Testament prophecies. He He was saying, okay, the Old Testament says the Messiah will do this. I'll do that. In doing that, I lay claim to being the Messiah. Well, okay, that's set aside that kind of prophetic fulfillment where it's easy to see that you could humanly manipulate the circumstances so that you're deliberately fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. Put that into the category of evidence that Jesus had this self-identity of the Messiah and wanted to make sure people knew that that was how he saw himself. But there are plenty of fulfilled prophecies over which Jesus could, humanly speaking, have had very little or no control, such as his genealogy, uh, the time and the place of his birth. It's pretty hard to arrange that one yourself, you know. Um, His repudiation by Peter, the the time and the detailed circumstances of his death, um, coming back from the dead and so on, Uh, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, after he was not around whatever view of him you take. So those things are pretty hard to chalk up to deliberate uh, manipulation of circumstances. But what about the the writers of the information we have about Jesus doing what's sometimes called historicised prophecy? Um, This is a fancy theological term for lying your head off. Basically, that's what it comes down to. Saying, um, oh, look, the Old Testament says this about the Messiah. Let's say that Jesus fulfilled it. Even though he didn't. In order to, to lay claim to him being the Messiah. Well, okay, I suppose that's a possibility. Um, but would characters that we see through the writings of the New Testament really do that? I mean, here's... Um, Verse from uh, 2 Peter 1.16. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in powers, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Um, you get a similar sort of claim in uh, 1 John as well. I think it's implausible to think that the disciples invented non-historical details in reports of, for example, Jesus' death and resurrection in order to, to kind of historicize prophecies that actually it's pretty clear that they themselves only interpreted as predicting such events in the light of the perceived reality of the resurrection. It's, it's clear, and even sceptical New Testament scholars will say, yeah, it's clear that the disciples were not expecting the Messiah to die. And they were certainly not expecting him to die and then resurrect from the dead... In history, before the the general resurrection at the end of history, that they that some Jews looked to. And it's only parts of the Old Testament they interpret as indicating, as prophesying, that Jesus would die and resurrect. But they only do that because they sincerely believe that they've seen Jesus die and that they've met him alive again. And then they're trying to understand that and they suddenly go, ah. Maybe that's what Psalm 22 is going on about. Oh, how did we not see that before, you know? Um, but they weren't, they weren't going to the Old Testament and thinking, right, okay, well, clearly what's going to happen is Jesus is going to die. And yeah, that's right. That's what the Messiah should do. Otherwise, why, for example, do we have the very embarrassing, remember the criteria of embarrassment story about um, Peter saying to Christ, once he said, you know, you are the Messiah, And then, but don't go to Jerusalem and get killed, and that would be stupid, Lord. Get behind me, Satan. You know, to one of the pillars of the... Why do you have a story like that if this sort of historicising of Old Testament prophecy is going on? That just doesn't seem to, to square. And it's also, I think, implausible given the integrity displayed in the Gospel writers' use of material all over the place that passes the criterion of embarrassment and their obvious sincerity in the fact that they're willing to die for this new claim about the the Messiah status of Jesus and so on um, I don't think that's something that they would have died for if they'd known that they'd just made up events that had to fit Old Testament prophecy because then they'd be thinking as Jews yeah the the infallible word of God predicts that the Messiah must do this if he's going to be the Messiah but Jesus didn't do that but we just said he did Please kill me. It doesn't make sense. So the disciples' willingness to be martyred demonstrates a sincerity and a concern for truth above all things. That's at odds with this historicized prophecy argument. Stephen T. Davis puts it like this. Had the early Christians engaged in such a practice, had they been willing to just make stuff up and attribute it to Jesus... It's highly probable that sayings would have been placed in the mouth of Jesus say that were relevant to the central concerns and controversies of the, of the church in the second half of the first century when these bits of literature were being produced. But but notice that there are no sayings of Jesus in the canonical Gospels that are directly relevant to such burning issues of the late first century church as the proper use of spiritual gifts, or whether male Gentile converts were obliged to be circumcised, whether Christians should divorce their non-Christian spouses, uh, the proper practice of the Lord's Supper, how churches should be organized and governed, and so on. So let's take just a quick look at a couple of categories of Old Testament fulfillment in Jesus. And again, this has always been an argument that's fascinated me, but when I've looked at it, um, you know, particularly I suppose I came across it first in writings of folks like the American uh, evangelical author Josh McDowell, for example, in books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict and so on. And it always intrigued me, but I always thought when I actually went and read You know, the one reference to the Old Testament prophecy and the one reference to the New Testament here, here's the evidence it was fulfilled, that a lot of those prophecies were, oh, we could have deliberately done that. Or um, he was born of the seed of of, of woman. Gosh, he had a mother. (laughs) Yeah, that's really unlikely. Or uh, it's one of those prophecies from the Old Testament that falls into the category uh, of kind of typological Fulfillment, as it's called. Um, so those verses where you might think Matthew seems to be sort of quoting the Old Testament out of context in, in applying a verse like, I, I called my child out of Israel, says God in the Old Testament. Oh, you know, Jesus after the, you know, Herod was after him and so on, the family went into, in, into, into Egypt and then came back. And applies that verse. And clearly in the Old Testament context, that verse is not a prophecy about the Messiah. It's talking about God bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. It's about the Exodus. Um, but there's a sort of typological fulfilment in as much as Israel as the child of God came to Israel out of Egypt. And the Messiah as the child of God came back to Israel. There's you know, a sort of parallel there, There's a sort of analogical relationship. And I think, okay, but I wouldn't use that kind of prophecy to mount this kind of argument from fulfilled prophecy. It's got to be, in the original context, a prediction about the Messiah. And I want, as far as possible, multiple bits of evidence, independent bits of evidence that Jesus really did fulfill those prophecies. I, I, you know, so we want to start applying again those kind of criteria of authenticity to beef up, was this really predicted and was it really fulfilled in Jesus? Uh, so here are eight prophecies about the Messiah's origins with the Old Testament predictions and multiple evidence of New Testament independent evidence of New Testament fulfilment and I, since I don't really do maths I'm a philosopher uh, I worked with a PhD uh, maths grad from Southampton Uni that I knew when I was doing the chapter in my book Understanding Jesus on this topic and we ran the numbers and we just, let's be very conservative about the numbers So let's give him a 1 in 10 chance of this, a 1 in 100 chance of that and so on Uh, well To fulfill these eight prophecies by chance, Jesus has about one chance in 17 million. Here are four prophecies about the Messiah's actions, or how he would perceived to be acting. And again, run some very conservatively estimated odds, and you multiply them together, multiple, multiple, multiple that comes out to one chance in 10 million. And okay, what we're doing here is a sort of of back-of-the-envelope calculation, but we're being deliberately conservative in making that back-of-the-envelope calculation. Now, if you then multiply those together, because it's combinatorial, you get one chance in 170 million million. If you took just 15 aspects of Jesus' fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. And if you haven't read them, I encourage you, go read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And assign a generous, surely generous, one in four chance for every fulfillment. So you'd have to be thinking things like, yeah, one in four Jews during that time were crucified. And so I think that's quite a high guesstimate. Uh, and so on. Well, again, here the odds would uh, come out at about 1 in 1,074 million. But again, multiply that to what we've already got. Combined with the odds concerning Jesus' origins and his uh, perceived actions, we can, again, conservatively estimate that Jesus had about one chance in 1.8 times 10 to the power of 23... And when, you, when people start using powers of in maths, that means they've got to big numbers um, <laughs> of fulfilling just those 27 prophecies by chance. And to put that in some context, because I'm at a concrete operational stage here, um, those odds are comparable to your chances of successfully picking at random on your first attempt a single pre-specified grain of sand out of all the grains of sand on planet Earth. Or, um, according to the European Space Agency, there are about 10 to the power of 23 stars in the observable universe. Now, imagine what number we'd have come up with for just, just that selection of prophecies that we looked at if our estimates had been less conservative and more realistic. So as Thomas Morris says, a series of prophecies made by different people at different times culminating in a single fulfillment by the life of so remarkable a person of Jesus amongst whom other evidence of the miraculous and so on clusters cries out for an explanation of a quite extraordinary sort. The most reasonable explanation, he reckons, is that God was involved in the prophecy and the fulfillment thereby giving us an extra ground for accepting Jesus as the culmination of divine revelation. Thank you, Peter. And that was just one he pulled out of his back pocket. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Questions for Peter? Peter? I um, understand some... Like prophecies like Isaiah fifty-three mm. and um, uh, some of the other ones, like on the actual. Mm. but like Psalm twenty-two, for example. Although the story looks really strikingly similar to like, mm. crucifixion and so on, it's a song about from David, and mm. did, whoever at the time they consider that as a prophecy about the Messiah. It doesn't really strike me as a prophecy about the Messiah. No. Yeah, I think this is a good point. And it's I, <coughs> kind of looking back and, and oh, that's similar. Oh yeah, it must be a prophecy. In Bible, yeah. Too. I, I talk about this at some length in my book because I, I feel that this kind of example kind of falls between the two categories that I just used in the talk, actually, of Old Testament prophecies that are obviously in context predictions about the Messiah and these merely typological prophecies that only, only bear a sort of distant analogical relationship to the life of Christ. I think that although, although in its original context context it was not a prophecy about the messiah it is so specific in its detail that matches up to what happened to jesus that it's it's just right really implausible to to think that it that there's not more going on there than a lucky kind of Oh, yeah, Jesus, by luck, happened to bear, you know, what happened to him happened to bear some sort of distant analogy to something that someone wrote in the Old Testament. Um, so, yeah, I'd have to kind of introduce a kind of third bit. It's the fact that it's, 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 it's not a sort of Barnum, read your horoscope in the, in the Daily Mail kind of, <laughs> kind of fulfilment. It seems so descriptive, of what actually happened historically that even though maybe David didn't think of it as that way the ultimate author of scripture, God did <laughs> um, and it's that striking specificity of, of the lock of the, of the match um, that you need in order to mount the fulfilled, fulfilled prophecy argument, you need very sp- specific data that's fulfilled at long odds. Um, so we're doing a sort of intelligent design CSI <laughs> um, inference from it. I think another way I've heard it put is that, of course, we refer back to, to properties by looking at uh, book and chapter and verse, whereas in those days they could have just looked at book, the chapters mm. and verse headings were added later Um, so they couldn't say look at Isaiah chapter 53 and verse Mm. 3 and and see what it says they'd have to say as the prophet Isaiah says and that would actually it's like a big hyperlink that takes you back to the whole context of what Isaiah is saying and pulling in one particular verse and for the for the size what's the big picture that the Old Testament is saying rather than here is the proof text so you have that sort of typological big picture background but then I uh, I think To sort of mount a sort of modernist kind of inference to best explanation argument, you need a a, a clear specificity of the of of the match, rather than just a sort of yeah, there's a parallel there. Kind of, as you're talking, I'm kind of suddenly thinking as well: is there wasn't David also considered as a prototype of the? Yes, yeah, that's right. Then then you already have it, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In a general context. Miriam. So, um, I found it interesting you talking about typological and like, fulfilments of prophecies. Mm. But, um, so last Thursday, yeah, last Thursday I was at a Quranic seeker study. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not chasing anything, but it was on Deuteronomy 18 and how um, Moses was talking to the Levites, and he said, "The Lord says He will raise up a prophet from amongst one of your brothers in the likeness of me." And that's... Well, obviously, Christians think of that and they think of Jesus, but Mm. Muslims see that and they think of Muhammad. Obviously, I discount him because he did perform many miracles like Moses, but can you see how that Mm. particular verse could apply to any prophet, I think? Yeah, right. Well, again, because... Again, you have this general drift in the Old Testament of the prophesying of the Jewish Messiah. Um... Of the Jewish Messiah, um, that everything is is, is pointing towards, um, in a, in a in a string of predictions that have to match up. So he has to come from Abraham, but he also has to come from you know the tribe of this, and he has to come through the line of David, and it has to be through. So it's the multiple arrows that all sort of point to narrow down to. Christ as the only possible fulfillment of that string of of prophecy and whether you you know whether you go through and you assign a back of the envelope guesstimate number to how likely is someone to fulfill each individual bit one by one or the whole lot let's give it a number you know um is kind of neither here nor there but it is having some specific information given that you know given a long time before the event that you think it's unlikely that, so, that someone fulfilling just by chance saying, Oh, well, that was lucky, kind of strains credulity. And it's at that point that you then have some evidence that points towards something more going on in the background. All the questions from this corner. What's the matter with you? <laughs> <laughs> Augustine, one point he made about, is unlikely the disciples would embellishing these things. Mm. Is that the case? Because, Josephus, everyone recognised that half was plagiarised. It seems like the editions did try to do something more valuable by, by doing these kind of things. Would it not the reasonable thing that the early ones did that too, even though they genuinely believed something was going on? Right. Okay. So this is relating to the one of the two passages in Josephus that mentions Christ, the longer passage, and in the Greek. Uh, Manuscript tradition of that, particularly scholars are generally agreed that the later Christian scribes in copying the manuscripts of Josephus have sort of beefed up um, how positive that passage is about Jesus, particularly when you compare it to the Aramaic and the Syriac manuscript traditions of of Josephus. Um, A, yes, they did, but only. They only beefed up the passage to reflect what they believed was historically true about Jesus. Not beefing up the passage to reflect things that they, believed, that they were in a position to know weren't historically true about Jesus, but they thought that the Old Testament said, and therefore they'd better say it about him, if we want to convince everybody that he's the Messiah. Which is, which is what the argument is saying that the New Testament writers would be doing to historicize this prophecy. They'd have to be thinking, oh... Clearly, everyone's going to agree that this is predictive of what the Messiah should be. We know Jesus didn't do that, but let's say he did anyway to convince everybody. And that's not at all parallel to later Christian scribes kind of adding in what they believe to be you know, extra bits of reliable historical information to Josephus to kind of reflect um, a better picture uh, for them, and you know, naughty, naughty, in terms of modern sort of standards of a- a- academia and so on, but I don't, I don't think parallel to what the historicide prophecy argument is actually claiming. One last question, no. oh, I just wondered: mm. so, in the last two thousand years, mm. has there been any demonstrated fulfilment of prophecy
1: from the followers? Right. Yeah. Thousands and thousands yeah. of
0: years like bam, and then nothing. Yeah. Um, not that I can think of. It doesn't seem to be in, in that sense of, of prophecy. Uh, although I think, for example, the gift of healing, there's some evidence for modern day healings and so on, I think, or words of knowledge, whatever, that kind of. I I certainly know of some rather convincing words of knowledge in Christian counselling contexts that that I could describe. But I don't think Christians are going around sort of saying, yes, you know, within three generations of George Bush being elected to the government of this, then the kingdom of such and such will fall. You know, that kind of Daniel kind of Old Testament kind of prophecy of things. I, I don't think so. I think the drift of the Old Testament prophecy points towards the Messiah uh, and the Messiah himself gave some prophecies like the temple falling within a, a generation and that, they'll, and that he will come again at the, at the last judgment and he said and you don't know when that's going to be and there will be wars and rumours of wars and earthquakes and famines and things and none of that means that the end is coming you can't predict these things yeah, um, keep your act together, <laughs> and I'll be back <laughs> eventually. <laughs> Don't try and predict it. So um, the, the church is generally kind of where various kind of Christian cults and so on have had a, quite a history of sort of predicting. Yes, you know, the second coming is going to happen on July the fourteenth next you week. Know, kind of, and then oh, it didn't. Um, oh, quick, go back to the drawing board. And <laughs> Christian orthodoxy doesn't sort of dabble in that sort of thing. <laughs> okay, I, I think we must move on there. Time for a quick um, refill.